We've got a couple of announcements for you today that also uh, are important. Um, one is that we want you to make sure, let us know if you have any needs. And we would encourage you to just contact us any way that you can because um, we care about you, love you, uh, want to make sure that we're doing community together, want to help in any way we can. And um, a couple other things is next week, Pastor Ben's going to actually be uh, talking about service, but he's also going to be leading us in communion. And so if you would like to do this, we want to encourage your family to actually go and get some juice and bread and sort of talk about that together and get ready to take communion um, together uh, on that Sunday. So that'll be really fun. Um, and then also, if you have any questions about anything, like if you're having a hard time connecting on, um, you know, the, the live uh, videos or anything like that, please let us know. We just want to help walk you through this time in a, in a way that will be really uh, helpful to you. And then also, we've heard recently, and you know, there's all kinds of stuff going on in Maryland and everything else, but at least here in Pennsylvania, the schools are now closed through April 6th, and so we're also figuring that we're closed until April 6th, and so we'll just have to deal with that and figure that out. But um, really glad um, uh, for the opportunity to be together. I'm glad that you're here today, and pray that you'll get a lot out of this message. I, I'm really um, having a lot of fun with that because in a way it sort of moves us in a direction that we're not usually used to. So we're in this whole series on the hope of Easter and, um, and in this series we're realizing how important hope is. I mean think about how important hope is right now in our world with everything going on with COVID-19 and everything else and Richard Foster says it this way. He says that hope is anticipating the goodness of God so we are anticipating God's goodness and the fact that resurrection happens and that that changes all of life um, that we know. So we're really excited about that. I'm looking forward to Easter, um, the opportunity to be together and, um, and to continue to, to worship this resurrected Christ who's in our midst. So last week, um, Christian did a great job of, of leading us as Jesus entered into Jerusalem uh, the triumphal entry and people were shouting on that day Hosanna Hosanna you know which means God save us and then the next thing that happens is that same crowd and this isn't exactly the same crowd but they start to then later shout out crucify him crucify him and so so today Jesus is still traveling but now he's actually headed to the temple and before he gets there, he's going to stop and he's going to look for something to eat. And he finds a fig tree, but the fig tree is barren. It has no fruit. So with that said, I want you to um, go gather your kids. Um, come and, and watch. We're going to show the, uh, the Kids Zone video uh, from the Gospel Project. Um, so watch this video now and see how it is that Jesus enters in the temple and what he's coming to do. All right, let's watch. It was the week of Passover. Jesus, his followers, and many other Jewish people traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate. Jesus and his disciples went into the temple area. What Jesus saw made him angry. In the area around the temple, people were doing things they were not supposed to be doing. Some were buying and selling animals for sacrifices, animals like oxen, sheep, and doves. Other people had set up tables and they were exchanging money. The Jews had to pay a tax at the temple, and they needed to have the right kind of money. 
so the people at the tables traded for the money accepted at the temple. And still other people were carrying supplies to the temple area, using it as a shortcut to get from one side of the city to the other. This was not what the temple was for. Jesus made those people leave. He pushed over the tables of the money changers, and he pushed over the chairs of the people selling doves. Jesus did not allow people to carry supplies to the area around the temple. He wanted the people to learn something important. Jesus said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? Jesus told the people, You have made this temple into a den of thieves. Not only were the people wrong for doing business there, they were not fair in the way they did business. They charged people too much money. They were misusing the temple, God's house. Jesus was right to be angry. The religious leaders saw that the people were amazed at the things Jesus taught and at the miracles he did. Every day, Jesus went to the temple to teach people about God. People who were blind came to Jesus, and he healed them. People who could not walk came to Jesus, and he healed them too. Children began shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. The religious leaders did not like what was happening. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked Jesus. Yes, Jesus said. Have you never read the scripture that says, you've prepared praise for the mouths of children and babies? The religious leaders were afraid of Jesus, so they started looking for a way to kill him. That evening, Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem. They went to the nearby city of Bethany and spent the night there. When Jesus cleared the dishonest people from the temple, he showed his commitment to honoring God. The temple was supposed to be a place where people could pray and worship God. Jesus was going to die on the cross to take away people's sins so anyone who trusted in him could come to God. So I want to say we really appreciate our KidZone leaders, Jeanette, Megan, Laura, everybody who's been working so hard on trying to get curriculum and different things out to everybody. So hope you enjoyed that video. Um, you know, the fig tree um, and the temple, one of the questions I want to ask us and get us thinking about is what do they have in common? And actually, Mark, the gospel writer that we're going to be paying attention to today, helps us to answer that question. So um, we're going to see a couple of nuances, a couple of different ways of looking at all this, but at the same time realize that, um, that Jesus is coming into the temple because he's making a point, and he draws us into that point. So let's pray together, and um, just God ask that, um, that you would open our hearts today. Um, open our hearts to the fact that um, you're a God who, um, who produces fruit in our lives, who walks with us, who wants to know us and be known by us. And, uh, and yet, God, um, we see also over the centuries how sometimes people haven't really understood that. And so pray today that you would break through whatever um, sort of shells we have, exterior things that are in our lives and and help us to catch a real glimpse of you um, the one who came so that we could have life we ask this in Jesus name amen so in this passage we're going to get a chance to sort of see some of the things that break God's heart and and I think that that's important because um, as followers of Jesus we're trying to develop a heart that actually beats with God's heart and so this story actually hints at what 
one of the things that upsets Jesus the most is. And I want to see or sort of lead you and see if you can figure out what this is all about. Why is it that Jesus is so upset? You know, this uh, Mark in his gospel, he sort of brackets this whole temple story by having an experience of Jesus looking for fruit on a fig tree at the very beginning. And then at the very end, he also sort of brings it all back together. And so what is it that he's trying to tell us? And, and in the midst of this, this is one of the rare times when we see Jesus actually angry. Um, he, in a sense, sort of has a temper tantrum. And, um, or maybe he's just having a really bad hair day. But, you know, what's happening is he's now coming in and saying, hey, this isn't right. This isn't the way that it's supposed to be. And so Mark, in his gospel, is going to very carefully lay this out because what he wants to see is that we can't interpret the fig tree incident or the temple incident in isolation because if we do that, it leads us in the wrong direction. So I want to work through this passage a little bit sort of scene by scene. I think it helps us to do that. Um, the first scene actually comes out of Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 14. So listen as I read um, God's word for us today. On the following day, so this is the day after the triumphal entry, when they came from Bethany, he who was Jesus, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see whether he perhaps would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Okay, so this is kind of a strange encounter. Um, I mean, after all, in defense of the fig tree, it's not really the fig season. So, so how do we understand this passage? And I, I would just simply say that um, whenever you find yourselves having a hard time understanding a passage, the thing to do is not to give up, but actually to dig deeper into the context of what you think is happening there. And so to me, this becomes a challenge. Like, you know, it's not fair to the fig tree. What's Jesus looking for? What's the message he's actually trying to convey? Because the reality is, whenever we read scripture, God is conveying a message to us. So one of the questions comes, what does this fig tree actually um, represent? And in the Old Testament, the fig tree always represents Israel. So listen to a couple of passages about that. Hosea chapter 9, verse 10 says, Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season. So actually, when you think about Israel and you think about figs, the fig tree was actually a barometer for the health of Israel. So what does it mean then? that there was no fruit, this tree was barren. And so Mark continues now, and he is going to actually um, join Jesus as Jesus now comes into the temple. So looking at chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, let's continue this journey with Jesus. Mark says, then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? 
but you have made it a den of robbers. So here we see Jesus. Now he's in the temple and he's pretty upset. And he's actually stopping sort of the normal procedures of what was happening in the temple. It's interesting because there was a temple tax where you had to actually exchange your money because a lot of the coin and money of that day actually had sort of pagan worship tied into it. And so there was a certain temple tax that they had to pay. Um, actually, there were sacrifices that were available there, but there was a good reason for that too because if you came from a long distance and brought a lamb and that lamb somehow got hurt on the way, um, it was just more convenient to be able to actually um, buy your animal there at the temple. Um, and it's also inter interesting because this isn't a cleansing in the sense of a ritual uncleanliness. Um, in fact, actually during the reign of the Maccabees, um, there was a time when uh, the Romans came into the temple and they actually um, sacrificed a pig on the altar. And that then led to a uh, ritual cleaning of the temple. But this isn't what's happening here. So, so why is there so much concern about what's happening? What's, what's really going on? I think one of the things we have to understand is Jesus is always subversive. I mean, when he tells someone, your sins are forgiven, he's assuring them that they're really forgiven. And he does all of this all the time without asking them to go to the temple and without them offering a sacrifice. So usually the only way that it would have been granted any kind of forgiveness would have been to go to the temple to offer your sacrifice and then actually to have a big party and celebrate the fact that you're forgiven. But here Jesus is skipping the temple and saying, no, let's go right to the party. If you just simply ask God to forgive you, God will. And, and so the question comes here, mostly by the religious leaders, you know, who did he think he was? What did he think he was doing? In our culture, it'd be a little bit like, um, you know, finding somebody on the street who would issue, a, issue you a passport or maybe a driver's license. And, you know, you sort of go up to them and go, hey, here's my money, and they give you the, the passport. Um, but in a real sense, part of what Jesus was doing was he was upstaging the temple, saying you don't have to deal with the priest and all the sacrifices. And, and this is actually how Jesus always operates. Because throughout his ministry, he was embodying a kind of radical alternative to the temple, which he believed he, that he was called to do. And so he arrived in, the, in Jerusalem, went into the temple, and the was which part of this actually represents the will of God and the coming of the kingdom? Is it seen in the temple itself and all the sacrificial procedures there, or is it seen in Jesus who actually comes as the Lamb of God who will give his life as a ransom for many? And so he disrupts the normal temp temple sacrifices. He drives out those who are selling and buying animals. He overturns the money changers' tables. He's, he's throwing a big fit, and he's saying, you know, this is not the way it's supposed to be because, as Isaiah 56 quotes, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. So he's upset that it's become this trading center as opposed to a house of prayer. And then Jeremiah 7.11 also sort of weighs in on this. And the prophecy of Jeremiah says, but you have made it a den of robbers. So from the very beginning 
of time. God had declared that the temple would be a house of prayer for all nations. It's interesting to think about because actually this goes all the way back to the call of Abraham and Sarah that they are called to be a blessing. They're, they're called to walk with God and know God, but they're also called to, to live out this idea of blessing so that they will be a blessing to all nations as well. And Jesus, throughout his ministry, he's been gathering outcasts, those who were really considered less than by society. And he expects, expects totally, this temple to, to um, embody this kind of inclusive love that God has for all people. But the problem and the structure of the temple was that there were all kinds of purity barriers that prevented this from actually happening. Gentiles were not allowed access. And in Jesus' day, the temple had become sort of a nationalistic symbol that served only to divide Israel rather than to bring them together. And, and Jesus comes in to say, all of this is going to have to crumble, all these dividing walls, and he's going to break down those dividing walls so that all people can know that they matter to God. And that's a really good thing. And so he says, um, my house, God's house, will be a house of prayer for all nations. It's a place where all people are welcome. All people can come. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your history is, nationality. Doesn't, none of that stuff matters. What matters is that you are valuable to God and you're being invited in. So a house of prayer for all nations. But, you know, I sort of think about this, and I think, well, isn't prayer rather sort of passive activity? And the answer to that is no, it's really not. In fact, actually, when we pray, what we're doing is we're actually entering into God's eternity with that. Henry Nouwen said that to, to pray is to enter into something that God's already doing. So when we pray and we join in being this prayer for all the nations, a house of prayer for all the nations, we're actually beginning to, to live out what it is that Jesus is calling us to do and who it is Jesus is calling us to be. I, I can't help but think about, I'm going to reference this group a couple of times, but um, there's a group called the International Justice Mission that actually um, is committed to fighting human trafficking and slavery all around the world. And one of the things that they do is they take 30 minutes of solitude and silence before their day starts. Everybody at their desk, they're just asked to, to sit there in solitude and silence. And then at 11 a.m. every day, they all gather to pray corporately for what's going on in the world. And I think that's a great testimony for us because what they're really saying when they're praying like that is they're saying we cannot accomplish what God's calling us to accomplish unless we have God's help to do it. So here's just something to think about. Um, until it makes it to your prayer list, that prayer really isn't on your heart. So God calls us to be those people, people of prayer. But the message here also about the fig tree is that Jesus looks at it, it has no fruit. And so he doesn't just t intend to reform the temple because it's bearing no fruit. And, you know, at this time, there was sort of a, a popular criticism of the temple. It was really seen as a central institution for Israel's religious, political, and economic life. Uh, the economy part of it was that people were employed by the temple. 
the political power base was that there was this wealth associated with the temple and, um, and there was also this priestly hierarchy and then also religiously it marked the separation of the secular from the holy so there's a sense that when you're at the temple you were in the place where God dwelt but when you were out of the temple um, God wasn't necessarily with you it was a symbol, this temple, of God's abiding presence and favor among the people. It's interesting because in the war of um, 66 AD, Josephus, who's actually a Jewish historian, um, recalls that the first act that the rebels did was that they stormed the temple and they burned the record of debts that were housed there in the temple. It was like going in and burning everybody's mortgage loan so that there was no more owed to people. And so God is now beginning to do something new. And in doing this new thing, the temple and the old system is becoming redundant. Jesus makes this um, criticism of the temple. He says, it has become a den of thieves. So what does he mean by that? Well, it's found in Jeremiah 7, as I said before. And here's a little bit, some snippets of what Jeremiah wrote uh, about what would happen with the temple. Verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, and then goes on, do not trust in these deceptive words. The, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. He goes on in verse 9, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are safe, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know... I too am watching, says the Lord. So the den is the place where robbers retreat after they've committed their crimes. It's their hideout. It's a place of security and refuge. And so by calling the temple a robber's den, it's not an outcry against any kind of dishonest um, business practices in the temple, but instead, it's Jesus's direct attack um, for them allowing the temple to degenerate into a safe hiding place where people can think they can find forgiveness and fellowship with God no matter how they act on the outside. They have placed their trust in the temple's sacrificial system rather than placing their trust in God. But you know, this isn't done yet. The story's not all written because now God is doing a new thing. And that new thing is actually being inaugurated through Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, for Jesus, the temple was actually a true signpost of God's future. He was saying, what you have in my life is the reality of what the temple has been pointing to all along. So the key is not to focus on the signpost, but rather to focus on the one that it points to. And the new reality is present right here in their midst. The reality is Jesus himself who comes to give his life. 
It's a little bit like, have you ever done this before where you try to get your dog to look at something and you sort of, you know, you point and um, you're trying to get the dog to look way over there, but your dog is sort of looking at your hand. This is what's happening. They're, they're seeing only what is here instead of seeing what the temple is actually pointing to. In Jesus' day, they focused so much on the temple that they missed the fact that the perfect Lamb of God the one who takes away the sins of the world, was actually standing right there in their midst. Jesus himself, God in the flesh, the reality to which the temple pointed. So as we can see and as we continue, even in the midst of this, um, they've already decided Jesus' fate. And when you get to verses 18 and 19, here's what Mark records. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. So they'd already decided Jesus' fate. They were, they were going to get rid of him. It was easier to get rid of him than to actually try to embrace this whole new thing that God was going to do. And it's interesting because it says that the, cow, the crowd was um, spellbound, and it really means they were sort of baffled. Um, they're not sure what he meant, <laughs> but interestingly enough, the religious leaders knew exactly what he meant, and that's why they wanted to get rid of him, because he was taking the place of the temple. And so Jesus and the disciples they left, and they set out of, and they they headed out of the city. So we see here a really good glimpse of Jesus and his passion. He's passionate for the things of God. He had a kind of righteous anger. After all, he was the perfect Lamb of God who came to be the sacrifice for all of our sin. But I want to ask you a little bit of a reflective question, and we're going to sort of go back and forth with this um, as we come and continue to work through this message. But the question is this. What are you passionate about? If, if there was one thing, here's a follow-up question. If there was one thing in the world that you could change, what would it be? You know, it's interesting. So when we're young, we oftentimes have lots of passion and desire. And, and we feel like God's calling us to really be world changers. I mean, we're supposed to be. Like, we, um, we give a, a check um, to any child that's baptized or dedicated because we're telling the parents that we believe that their kids are going to be world changers. But the reality is that anybody who calls on the name of Christ is actually a world changer. We're called to do that. So... What happens to the passion that we have? Well, I think sometimes it sort of gets adulted, not adulterated, but adulted out of us. Um, we have responsibility. We have things we have to do, places we have to be, and, and sometimes we forget that um, we were really meant to be those who could change the world. But here's the rub, I guess. We don't change the world by simply going through the motions. It actually takes action on our part and fruit that we bear in our lives. It was about 10 years ago that I was at the Global Leadership Summit and there was a speaker named Gary Hagen, which I've already talked a little bit about him. He is the founder of the International Justice Mission and his organization fights human trafficking and slavery all over the world. And, um, and Gary, you know, came to realize how important that was, but he came to also realize that when you're facing an enormous thing like human trafficking and slavery, 
um, it's hard to feel like you're making a dent in it. So there were two things in his life that actually triggered his involvement. And I'm going to share with you the second one first, and then I'll get to the second one in a minute. But the first one, or the second one, was that he was a member of the Justice Department. And during the Rwandan genocide, he went to Rwanda to see what had happened. And it was there as an adult, sitting in the midst of death, that he decided that he needed to actually fight for life. That was a changing time for him. But the first thing that happened, which was earlier when he was about 12 years old, um, was an experience that also reminded him of what God's call on his life was. Um, he and his, he had gone with his dad and brothers on a camping trip, and one day they were actually planning to hike up to the mountaintop and take a, a look at the whole summit of the valley below. But Gary actually didn't want to go. In fact, he was feeling pretty lazy. And so there was a, sit, a visitor center at the base of the mountain that people would off, oftentimes set out from. And you know those places. Uh, they've got maps and stuffed animals from the region, uh, videos of what the hike of the summit would be like. And so Gary decided that um, he was going to convince his dad to actually let him just stay at the visitor center instead of going on the hike. And so after about 10 minutes of whining, complaining, he finally did convince his dad. And his dad agreed to let him stay there while his two brothers and the father all headed out on the hike. Well, Gary was pretty pleased with his accomplishment. He started to look around the visitor center. He watched the videos. He looked at some of the stuffed animals in the case, cases. And he thought he was pretty smart, actually. But after a while his enthusiasm began to um, evaporate. I mean, after all, how long or how often or how many times can you watch the same video? And it was going to be for the next four hours. And it dawned on him as he was sitting there that he was looking at a bunch of dead animals and he was seeing somebody else's experience, but he was missing the real experience because everything around him was artificial. The real adventure was out on the trail where the animals were alive and what he was experiencing in the visitor center was not real life. And he writes this in his book. He says something inside of him changed that day. He decided he would never miss the adventure again. He would stop hanging around the visitor center and instead engage life head on. This was an experience um, where he came to grips with how life can be lived rather than just observed, and it prepared him to be um, the CEO and leader of a Christian organization that would help hundreds of thousands of people that were being horribly abused throughout the world. So here's another question. What passion has God given you to make a difference in our world. You see, all of us, every single believer in Jesus Christ, we were all meant to be world changers. So Jesus was passionate, and he invites us to be passionate as well and to realize that God puts these things into us because it's part of the fruit that God wants us to bring into the world. And so we're going to continue now with the journey, and we're now to Mark chapter 11, verses 20 and 21. And so here's sort of the other um, bookend of the fig tree story. 
Verse 20 says, in the morning as they passed by, they saw the pig tree, excuse me, the fig tree, wither away to its roots. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Wow. You see, one of the things that God doesn't like is fruitlessness. For Jesus, the biggest disconnect, really, is when people go through the motions without really allowing God to be in charge of their lives. Fruitfulness glorifies God, but going through the, emotion, the motions doesn't glorify God. In fact, it actually disconnects us from God. So we come now to sort of the continuation of this part of it, and it's chapter 11, verses 22 through 25. So Jesus goes on. He says, and he answered them after they saw that the tree had withered. He said, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and if you do not doubt in your heart, but believe that what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. So Jesus, again, bypasses the temple and says, you know what? You don't need to go and offer a sacrifice to be forgiven, but rather when you stand and pray, forgive, and then allow God to forgive you as well. So there's a new praying community that's going to spring up in spite of the temple, and it will be seen in faith and in forgiveness. There's no need for sacrifices or priests because simply when one confesses, God brings forgiveness and new life to them. So what will that prayer community look like? Well, It'll be a prayer team, a prayer community that will pray receptively. They'll pray confidently. They'll pray expectantly without discouragement. They'll pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But the religious leaders, they miss that fact because here standing in their midst is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Their fruitlessness is obvious, and that's what Jesus calls them out on. So that, though, brings us to a different kind of question, and the question is this, then, well, what does the fruitful life look like? I mean, if Jesus is making such a big deal about all this, well, here's what it looks like. It looks like actually being connected to Jesus, because Jesus is actually the source of all life and the source of the fruit in our lives. And Jesus talks about this in John chapter 15, where he goes on to talk about what does it mean to actually abide and to, to bear fruit. And so he says this, John 15, verses 4 through 5, Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you also abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me you can do nothing you know in about as many verses 11 verses this 
word abide is used 11 times. What does it mean to abide? It means to remain, to stay, to live, to make your home in. You see, we were made to have a life with God and in that then to bear fruit. And so the Bible's full of all kinds of stories of people who walked with God, who found in that vital relationship um, that God was with them and they, they ordered their lives around that connection with God. So what is abiding? What does that life with God really look like? How would you describe um, the Christian life? It's a life lived in connection with Jesus Christ where we learn to abide. We learn to grow in our faith. Um, we change because God is active in us. We produce fruit. We, we learn to experience God's presence all day, every day. And, and as the life of Christ flows into us and through us, it produces, it produces fruit. And we change um, because our lives begin to take on the character of Jesus himself. And again, the things that break God's heart begin also to break our hearts. And in that, we find the call of God on our lives. So disciples live their lives aware of God's presence with them. Um, how do we live into the reality of this consistent presence of God, though? How do we realize that God is actually flooding our lives all the time? Have you ever heard of um, a, a certain person named Nicholas Herman? He was born in France um, in 1611, and maybe you've heard his, um, his actual given name. It's uh, he's better known as Brother Lawrence. He was a lay brother who, ser who served in a Carmelite monastery, and he was known for practicing God's presence in his daily life and work. When he died, um, the monastery took his letters and they turned them into a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. Next to the scriptures, it is probably the most widely read book on spirituality. So Brother Lawrence wrote this. He said, we only need to recognize God intimately present with us to address ourselves to him every moment that we may beg his assistance for knowing his will even in things doubtful and for rightly performing those which we plainly see that he requires of us, offering them to him before we do them and giving thanks to him when we are done. So Brother Lawrence was able in his life to turn his whole life into an opportunity to experience God's presence with him. And he found that as he did that, that there were other benefits that came his way as well. Benefits such as forming an active life of faith. He came to believe and understand that God was there. He experienced renewed hope in his life. Um, he started to realize that our life is not just dependent upon what we can see, but that God is actually always working behind the scenes of our life, that God works to strengthen our relationship with God, and that when there's things that block that relationship, God actually removes those and helps us to be able to connect better with God and with other people. When we practice God's presence, we begin to think about all that we do in, an, uh, in an, a, re, a new light, in a different way. 
So how can an ordinary person do that? How can we actually begin to experience God's presence in all of our lives? Well, you know, Jesus said, uh, the prophecy said that Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us, that, that God is with you. Uh, you're never alone. Every day, wherever you're at, no matter what you're doing, God is with you. So where's the best place to start? Well, I think oftentimes the best place to start is just in sort of the small moments. I mean, maybe it's waking up in the morning and you take a moment to acknowledge God's presence. Or maybe it's waking up in the middle of the night and you're sort of worried about stuff and acknowledging God's presence with you right then. Or maybe it's between meetings or maybe it's on your way running an errand. And, uh, but learning to experience God's presence, seeing God present in nature, um, experiencing God's presence through a friend, These are the ways that we start to connect with God and God begins to bring fruit into our lives. So let's get back now to what Jesus was saying. You know, part of what he's saying is that time is running out for fruitless trees and for prayerless temples. The time is changing. The fig tree and the temple, they're both guilty of false advertising. And in spite of the temple's immense power and holiness, it's going to be destroyed. In fact, about the time that Mark's writing his gospel, which is somewhere from 66 to 70 AD, the temple is already being destroyed. It will no longer be the focal point of God's presence among the people. But here's the good news message. God cannot more be confined to one spot than Jesus could be contained in a tomb. The holy place now is wherever disciples preach Jesus' gospel. Wherever his people, Jews and Gentiles, gather together, that is the holy place. And so the chief priests, they, they get this. The scribes, the elders, you know, basically everyone who was in charge of the temple, and, and they say, hey, hey, wait a second, Jesus. Who put you in charge? But actually, that's the wrong question. And so we continue now with Mark eleven twenty seven through 30. So again, they came to the Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, <laughs> this is so classic, Jesus, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do things. Here's his question. Did the baptism of John come from heaven or was it of human origin? Answer me. By what authority are you doing things? They question him. And, and in true Jesus fashion, he counters their question with another question. You know, did the baptism of John come from heaven or was it of human origin? And so here's the interesting thing because John is the forerunner, right? Who comes to actually pave the way and to make all the valleys, uh, to smooth out the road for the coming Christ. But John also came preaching a baptism of repentance which bypassed the temple itself. There was no sacrifice needed in John's baptism. The only thing that was needed was a repentant heart. And so in doing so, he, like Jesus, actually went around the temple sacrifices. And so Jesus here aligns himself with John. 
who was himself a signpost to the one who came to give his life for all people. He was a signpost for Jesus. And so it continues then in verse 31 through 33. So they argued, here's the scribes and the Pharisees, um, the chief priests, the elders. They argued with one another. If we say from heaven, he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? But shall we say of human origin? And here's the clue. They were afraid of the crowd, for all regarded John as truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. You see, the point of this whole story, the point of this fruitless tree and the temple and Jesus being there and everything else is that the one who is greater than the temple is actually standing right there in their midst. This is Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, the one who would give his life as a ransom for many, the one who by his death would secure grace for anybody who believes so that all people can know that they matter to God. Jesus comes as one full of grace and truth, inviting everybody into a relationship with God that's life-giving. So what does it mean for us? Well, I want to, um, I really appreciated Christian last week with his takeaways. So I've got a couple of takeaways for us also. The first one is that Jesus calls us to really allow the things that break God's heart to begin to break our hearts. So, so here's a reflective question for you. What breaks your heart? What do you feel breaks the heart of God? You know, all of us were meant to be world changers. So, so God calls us to that kind of action. We follow Jesus' example in making it simple for people to connect to God and to each other. That's, that's our motto here. We want to make it simple for people to connect to God and each other. And so we're removing all the barriers so that that can actually happen. We're making sure that every woman, man, child, and teen, every single person here knows how much they matter to God. And in the midst of all this, there was this one thing that sort of upset Jesus the most. What upset him the most was a system that kept people out, a system that produced no fruit. And even worse, it made ritual observance more important than God's love and grace. They they were going through the motions, but the fruit of repentance and the fruit of God's changed lives was not being shown in them. Jesus stood before them as the only one who could break the power of sin and death. And he was inviting everyone, every single person, by believing in him and what he came to do to an abiding, life-giving relationship with God one in which people would walk with them, God would walk with them, they would be God's people, and God would be their God. So it's through his death on the cross, as God's perfect sacrifice for sin, and his resurrection three days later, that we can have eternal life when we believe in him. This is the glorious good news of the gospel. God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. In closing, I want to just quote Peter. You know, Peter's always a little bit behind on everything, but, but he really clarifies this. He's the, um, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, but he's writing, he says, 
For you know that it was not with perishable things. This is Peter 1, 18 through 20. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and your hope are in God. Amen. So I'm going to invite the um, band to come up as we prepare for our last song. Hey, we invite you to join and sing with us as we sing this last song. i 
for joining us this week it's been great to um, at least to know you're out there I can't see you but it's great to know you're out there and um, just want to continue to uh, let you know that we really want to hear from you like if there's something you're questioning about the online formats we'd reach out to us we'd love to have a chance to talk with you about that um, if you have any needs let us know um, we've received some needs and are aware of some things that are going on that we might be able to um, help with so um, please don't hesitate if it's something we can't do we'll let you know but would love to just be in contact with you um, also remember next week we're going to be doing communion and pastor ben will be leading that so uh, make sure to prepare for that get some juice and some um, and some bread and be ready to do that as a family if you have any questions about um, anything you know in terms of website um, online stuff anything like that feel free to contact us and um, like I said earlier in the service, you know, we're still following the Avon Grove School District, and at this point, they're saying they're closed um, through April 6th, and so we're thinking that's probably true of us as well, but um, I want you to know we miss you. Uh, we're really looking forward to being back together, looking forward to having Josh back, just really grateful um, for God being with us in the midst of this, and, and, and praying also that, um, that God's peace would really be yours today, you know. Here we are, we're in the midst of this um, pandemic, everything that's happening, and at the same time realizing that, um, that God is walking with us. God is close to us. God is here. All we have to do is turn. And so, so it's a prayer, our prayer this week, that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, that would guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus um, this day and all your days. So God bless you. It's been great to have you here, and um, we'll look forward to more times together as we approach Easter. All right, God bless.